0: What I have learned over the course of the last two, two and a half years is the cops do not know the laws. They don't know the laws. They don't know what constitute, constitutes probable cause.
1: I'm Essen Zafar, and welcome to another episode of Unfair Nation, the podcast that discusses our nation's rising inequity and social, political, and economic inequality, what it means for you, and what you can do about it. Every so often we interview one person to get their perspective and today I'm joined by William Goode of Film the Police LA. We are a violent country by almost all measures, including the number of citizens in the United States who are assaulted or die at the hands of police. In this episode, I'm going to talk to someone is looking to end police brutality by shedding light on how the los angeles police department responds to calls my guest william good has been running film the police la for the last several years you can find the account on twitter under film the police la and it's a project that is part of a growing movement of cop watchers who leverage technology to document and then share how police respond to incidents, believing that doing so will change the way policing functions on a day-to-day and street-to-street level. Let's listen to what William has to share about his work, why he feels it's important, and how others can get involved safely and responsibly in this work. All right, well, thanks for being here, William. Appreciate you joining us. Um, Really excited to talk to you about the work that you've been doing. It's really innovative, and I think uh, it's important and necessary. So as kind of a starting point, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit, just describe kind of uh, the work uh, that you've been doing and maybe what inspired the work that you've done.
0: Yeah, sure. So um, the work I've been doing, I don't know what I would call it. Um, I guess you'd call it cop-watching, but I think it's a little bit more than that. I see myself, I guess, as an accountability activist. Um, What I've been doing is going through different phases. It started out sort of casual. Um, I started noticing things, police stops that were troubling. I started immersing myself in policy. Been a lot of hours out documenting a lot of stops. I don't know how many total stops. Sort of been ad hoc with it, but I would say somewhere around 2,500 documented. I would say 80% of them have been in Hollywood H D area, which Hollywood Entertainment Division area, Um, uh, and I've just documented a lot of stops. With that, quite honestly saw a lot of policy violations, um, and I filed a lot of complaints along the way, a lot of third-party complaints. And over the last two and a half years, I've been able to document the LAPD discipline process from beginning to end. So I'd say if anything that's really been my LAPD discipline process.
1: So when you say that you're, you know, watching the police, what does that look like? So describe that process to us. How does that happen? Are you are you do you are you doing this by yourself? Do you have a community of folks that you're working with?
0: As far as watching the police, it's sort of been it's been evolving and I would say it's sort of full service at the watching could has meant documenting and filming police stops, then when the stop is over, interviewing the subjects who were put through the police and the police themselves, if they're willing to give me a statement, then following that up with a visit to the police station, to the division, to talk with the supervisor and file complaints, and then from there following that straight through to the end with uh, the internal affairs investigations, the final disposition. If I get a final disposition, with i followed up with communications to the chief and i want explanations from him and he'll provide explanations or he'll refer me directly to head of internal affairs i follow these things from beginning to end to make sure that there is some accountability way and listen when i first got into this i had two two things i really wanted to focus on. hold police officers accountable or expose the process as being and during the course of the last i guess almost three years I've done a lot of both. So for me, as far as a network that I work with, it's limited. So it's a lot of the work I do is myself. But I do it, quite honestly, I do it try to protect the community. And at the end of the stop, usually somebody's saying, hey, thank you for for being there. So that's mostly
1: what I do. So, like, would you say that you're almost an advocate, playing the role of an ongoing advocate from interdiction until the disposition of a, of a stop?
0: That's exactly what I am. I mean, it, it's funny because I got into an argument with Chief Moore a few weeks ago, and I confronted him in front of the police station We're having a Christmas party. He had just lost us a $4 million lawsuit covering up sexual harassment of a captain. So I confronted him about it. And then he went and complained to the L.A. Press Club that I was unprofessional in my role as media representative. I was there not to be a media... I wasn't there to be a media representative. I was there to be an advocate. And so he says, oh, is that what you are? I- I'm whatever I want to be at the time. Um, but yeah, I would say an advocate, probably a really good term to use for what I do during a process, working with people who have just been violated by the police and try to get them some sort of justice.
1: Because it almost seems like you are you're filling a gap. You're filling a need. I mean, this seems obvious when we're talking about it, but It almost seems like everybody should have a William, right? Like everybody should have a William. It shouldn't just be something you are doing on your own time. This should be some kind of institutionalized process where a William exists for this kind of situation in every city. Would you, is that something that you would like to see eventually?
0: I mean, I look at it like this, right? So I sort of created a model and I've tested it out and I think it's been pretty effective. And so it's a model that other people can use, and if they want to replicate it elsewhere, fine. Improve on it. Kind of make your own version. Look at some of the stuff that I've done, and look what I've done effectively, and use that.
1: So how do you show up at the stop? How do you know, how do you know something's happening?
0: So first off, right, I look at what I do in a couple of different actual documentation of a police stop, and I feel that, like you said, I fill that gap. There aren't people out there doing that. I also fill a gap in what I think is um, the media. The media really stinks out here. As far as these reporters, absolutely suck at covering the LAPD. Even the people whose only job is to cover the LAPD can't do it effectively. Shooting last night up in Silver Lake, right? I could not make it there to question the PIO. I doubt somebody else made it there. That's their job. It's not my job. So I try to fill that role too. And I try to fill a role of media yeah, actually digging into stories, reporting it out, showing it for what it is. So there are different aspects of it. when it comes to a police stuff, generally ninety nine ninety five percent of the time, I'm just going about my business during the course of the day. I do a lot of jogging. I finished jogging. I I like jogging late I like jogging at one o'clock in the morning. Or I like walking to Starbucks, and along the way to Starbucks, I see a police stop. So most of the police stops that I have documented have just been me going about my business and bumping into them. And it used to be a real big problem in the Hollywood area because I would literally walk one mile from my house to the Starbucks. During the course of that time, that one mile walk back and forth, I would bump into five police stops. 95% of those police stops were black people. 99% of them were handcuffed and searched. Searched for what reason? Searched for failure to use a turn signal. Searched for doing a California roll through a stop sign. Searched for parking in the reds. Again, to search a vehicle or a person, any probable cause of a crime having been committed or about to be, parking in a red zone is not a crime. It's an infraction. Failure to use a turn signal not a crime. It's an infraction. So I saw all these searches going on. They're clearly illegal. And I remember one time I was walking in front of the police station, arguing with the sergeant, having a conversation, a constructive conversation, about an hour. And I told him, I said, you know, I'm kind of annoyed about all these police cars in your parking lot, the personal cars that lack license plates or have illegally tinted windows. Those are the two top reasons you people pull pe- black people over in Hollywood and search the cars. And he said, you know what? He said, you should write those officers up for them. And I said, I will. But at the same time, you are pulling black people over for these same infractions and searching them. And the sergeant said to me, that's because the law allows it. And that was mind boggling because the law does not allow. It. What I have learned over the course of the last two, two and a half years is the cops do not know the laws. They don't know the laws. They don't know what constitute, constitutes probable cause. I talked to a law professor and he said, you know what? I could have my students go through years and years of law and they cannot recite the laws off the top of their head, but yet we put officers through five months of training. And that's not just on the law, that's going learning about weapons, learning how to use a rifle, learning how to use a handgun, learning how to drive the cars, learning about policy and procedures, all this and that. How long did they spend learning about the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, very little. And so they don't know nothing, And on top of it, they only need like 65% or 70% to pass so they can get those questions wrong. And now they're out in the street enforcing laws at 21 years old, but they don't even understand. And so that's something that I noticed time and time again while documenting stops.
1: Yeah, so you point out like one of the most preeminent problems with the entire structure of law enforcement, right? You give somebody power over life and liberty, and in many cases, they have minimal life experience. They are not coming from different backgrounds or diverse backgrounds. They are they are dealing with kind of a biased culture and workplace culture. Uh, they are living in an environment and working in an environment of fear. You give them a weapon that can take away people's lives, uh, and you don't give them any kind of adequate training. Or uh, you know, law students, like you said, get three years. I'm a law professor. You know. Uh, Even I don't know a lot of the statutes and civil code and criminal code in the city, right? Tell me a little bit about how you think your work goes towards solving even a piece of this problem. Is it through awareness or is it through relationship building or is it, what is your, how do you see your work kind of contributing? This is a big problem, right? And not one, no one thing is going to solve it. We probably need to change the entire face of what we call policing, and that's a different podcast for a different day. But how do you think that your work is contributing to at least starting to get the ball rolling, maybe even in just your neighborhood, towards solving these kind of issues that we've just outlined?
0: Well, I mean, I thought I think you brought up a good point. First off, again, these officers, you know, to become an LAPD officer, you only need 20 years old when you enter the academy, 21 when you graduate, a GED, and 2040 vision, and five feet tall. So that's the criteria to become So since they only need a GED, and this is not a knock on a G, I'm originally from New York. Officers out there have to have an associate's. You know what? When you step your foot on step foot on campus, you're exposed to different cultures and gain some life. Experience. This is these are not experiences that these LAPD officers are dealing with. They're coming into an area like Hollywood that's five percent black, but yet somehow black people are making up ninety five percent of the stops I see. These are white cops, and they're not from here. Ninety-four percent of LAPD officers do not live in the city of L.A. So they're coming from outside of L.A., probably from a community that looks a lot different than what they're patrolling. And there is fear. And they don't, they're do not they not used to these, uh, the, you know, quite honestly, the culture. In the Hollywood HED area, when I first started, there were 60 officers dedicated to that detail. A year later, it was knocked down to 23. So it went from 60 to 23. And quite honestly, that's what I have paperwork on that I can, I receive through CPR. I believe it was 70, tight. So in the course of a year of cop-washing and exposing the problems the HED, they knocked it down from 70 to 23. And quite honestly, there was a fight because they were close to getting rid of that whole entire detail together. But somehow they managed to save it. So we brought that, down the number of cop by 60, 70%. Now, I'll be honest with you. I don't know what, I don't know what, the crime statistics look like exactly, I know from being out there, crime has not increased. So if we if we reduce the number of cops in the area by 60, 70 percent and crime stay the same or potentially even lower, it kind of defeats the narrative that increasing the number of cops leads to a reduction of crime. You now, that pi- kind of twists it on the head. So on a micro level, that's the effect that I've had on it. On a larger level, I think that we're... I've tried to focus on expanding into, again, showing up at shooting scene and not just accepting what public information officer giving as answers, challenge them. I've been on a police shooting scene, there was a body laying in the street 150 feet away and they weren't willing to admit that there had actually been a shooting that somebody had been shot, but there's a body right there covered in white sheet that's blood soap and you can't even give me this information were one time Murr Park, cops shot a guy in the back. They said he had a weapon. I asked him what was a weapon. Was it a gun? He said it was a weapon. I said it was a knife. He said it was a weapon. What is the weapon? We come to find out it was a car door lock. Okay. So they need to be challenged. I don't think the reporters do a good job of that. So I like to fill that role to challenge them. So it's more than just cop watching it as, you know, it's more than just being out in the street filming police stops, advocating for the people at the end of the stop. There's that, but it's more than that. It's quite honestly getting my hands on data. I do a lot of CPRing or Freedom, Freedom of Information Act requests. I do a lot of that. I get a lot of documents, try to expose different connections. I, I found a lot of stuff. So it, when I say it's full service, it's, there's a lot that's entailed. Going forward, I filmed a lot of stops, I filed a lot of complaints. I've gone through the complaint process. Hundreds of times. The next step is I need to show exactly what happens during this process. So in the next week or so, I have my website where I'm going to look at each incident as a case study showing, here's the video of the police stop. Here is me interviewing the subjects after the stop to find out what happened. Here is me confront, here I am confronting the officers. Here is the complaint that I filed. Here is, here are the questions that internal affairs sent. Here is the final disposition. Here, I, here is my conversation with the complaint supervisor getting an explanation. Here I am emailing Michael Moore or Professional Standards Bureau or Internal Affairs to get further explanations or to get them to admit that he screwed up on something. Follow Straight through the LAPD commission where I'll appeal cert, uh, certain complaint dispositions. So I really think it's important to show what this looks like every step of the way. Nobody's ever done this. Right? So I, if you look at you know investigative journal, might have had a situation where a journalist looked at an incident where a complaint was filed and maybe filed it someone. I can show you the whole incident. I can show you the video. I videotaped it. I video. I have recordings talking to the subjects at the scene, explaining what happened. I have recordings talking to the office at scene, confronting them. I have recordings talking to the complaint supervisor, giving me an explanation as to why they gave a certain complaint uh, a complaint of disposition i can show this from beginning to end hundreds of times and when i show this detail that there is a serious problem the discipline process in the lapd is broken chief michael moore is not an honorable person when it comes to the discipline process and so that's the next step is detailing that Putting those out, uh, I'll probably release them once every five days, maybe once a week. Each individual one. I mean, quite honestly, it's going to be a long article, a lot of documentation. But I have a lot of documentation. I send so many emails back and forth. I get them on record. I'm cpr so much. And I think people are going to be amazed at how broken the process is. And quite honestly, nobody's going to have any excuses. So nobody in city council is going to be able to say, oh, well, we didn't know. They did know. Because I they were CC'd on every one of those emails, and I will detail that too. But now when they're presented with this documentation, this evidence, they're going to have to, what are they going to say? They're not going to be able to say anything, and nobody's going to be able to say anything. Um, and so I think I'll be in a position of, so that's just one of the programs.
1: Let me ask you, let me step back and ask you kind of a question. How did you get started in all of this? What precipitated your desire to work on this on on the LAPD in your neighborhood, but just overall in cop-watching and everything that come, goes along with it?
0: Yeah, it, it all started, quite honestly, with the protests, right? I, when the protests started, I wasn't actually involved. Oh, yeah, the George Floyd protests. It all started with the George Floyd protests. First night or two, quite honestly, the protest. I was just out in my, trying to protect my, car, my neighbor's cars from getting smashed up. And then during the course of my time out there, we had some sheriffs driving up and down the street, being very, uh, saying they were aggressive is an understatement. They were shooting kids with pepper balls. I saw them round up a bunch of kids, with, uh, shoot them up with pepper balls, and then drive right through the crowd of kids. One kid was on the ground, dragged him inside my gate. He was, first thing he said it to me, he looked at me, I thought this was supposed to be not. And so that really affected me. Um, and so I started going out in a protest. And I went out there hard, protested hard. At a certain point I realized, but this isn't gonna get any. It's like a pep rally. You gotta go out there and play the game. What are we gonna do to actually have an effect? And I was looking for little things I can go out the cops for. Oh, Michael Moore's put an order in place that all officers have to wear masks while in public and around other LAPD employees. I'm like, oh, okay, these guys never wear their masks. So you know what, I'm gonna document it and I'm gonna start filing complaints. Started with that. And during the course of documenting them not wearing masks is when I started noticing these police stops and started noticing the violation again, I wouldn't say it was full term cop watching at first. It was just me going out trying to get my twenty twenty five thousand footsteps during the course of the day bumping into these police stops. but then after a while I became i just really became focused on it, and I became even a little bit of a burden at times. I felt at times that if I wasn't out there protecting people on the stops, and nobody was, and I so I'd feel guilt. So I'd be out there at 4 o'clock in the morning and have to get up at 6 to start working and go through that night after. So that's where it started. It started with the protests, evolved into after them, over their masks. And then from there, seeing the violations, confronting them on it, confronting the LAPD, and taking
1: it to where we are today. And what kind of reactions have you gotten from? You've talked about a little bit throughout this entire uh, interview. You've talked a little bit about how police have reacted, but Michael Moore... But what has stuck out in your mind? What's kind of been the systemic reaction from law enforcement to the work that you're doing? Besides a lot of harassment? Yeah, so talk a little bit about that harassment. I think, like, it, you know, we need to know, right? Because, they, because law enforcement are public servants. They work for us. We pay their salary, right? And so if somebody's working for me and they're harassing me, that's, uh, that's, an, that's no good, right? I mean, putting aside the power that law enforcement enjoy compared to a regular employee or anything like that. But talk a little bit about that, but then also talk a little bit about kind of how has it, what's been the organizational response, right, or the policy response to the work that you're doing?
0: So the harassment started, first complaint I filed, I sent an email in, 10 minutes later, I said, you know what, I'm going to go walk to Starbucks. I walk outside my gate and there, police car driving down the street with its lights off it was the night. At one mile per hour, and then going down to the end of the street, and turning around and coming back, it was pretty obvious they were doing. I thought it was funny. At the same time, if they were doing that to my girlfriend, my wife, my kids, my mother, my grandmother, it's not funny. Okay, so that stuff like that doesn't scare me. It just kind of fuels me. It's not funny. So I felt it needed to be addressed. So the harassment during the first year was just nonstop. It'd be them following me around at night, a lot of jogging. They were following me around at night. They were flashing lights at me while they're driving by, cursing at me, things like that. Then it evolved into arrests. I was arrested during the course of a year. I was arrested five times or or either arrested or attempted uh, to be prosecuted for petty things like eavesdropping. Because I recorded my phone call with the complaint supervisor giving me an official explanation for a complaint from a letter I received from Michael Moore saying, hey, if you have questions, call this person. So I have a right to get that information. I recorded it. Uh, they said that I didn't legal because there wasn't a two-party consent. That's not what the law says. The law says that, first off, you, there's already case law. It says an officer doesn't have an expectation of privacy when making a phone call in the office. Secondly, there's, there isn't an expectation of privacy if there's a reasonable likelihood that the person could be recording. You know, my name is Phil, the police. Good chance I'm recording interactions, and I think also the public has the right to get a receipt for these sort of interactions with the police. And quite honestly, I was, you know, so they tried to have me prosecute the city attorney, and she said, "Well, if you don't do it again the next year, you know, we won't, we won't prosecute, prosecute." So I went home, called up a complaint supervisor, and had a conversation with him, and immediately recorded it because I'm not going to play this. I'm gonna record these. These are official interactions. Uh, I'm gonna record it. So I had, you know, attempted arrest for that. I had an arrest. I had a guy. I he was throwing stuff at cars and at people, bottles and stuff. Screamed at him to stop. He went to his tent. I cleaned the stuff out of the street. Next thing, he comes out with a pole and a knife in his hand. Man, to that's a tough guy. But I'm not gonna not gonna stick around for it. I left. Went about my business. Three hours later, I hear sirens. I hop on a scooter, I follow it, it's the same guy again. Somebody called 911 on him, said that he was walking up and down the street with a pole and a knife in his hand, threatening people. I come to the scene, that guy says, the guy who was under arrest, was handcuffed, said that guy over there, he threatened to burn down my tent earlier. The officers took the handcuffs off of him and put them on me. Those two officers I had four pending complaints against. I filed a complaint against one of them a week before. They, you know, we keep on hearing about there's no bail. They gave me a $50,000 bail. They seized two of my phones. They got search warrants to access my phone. So this, like I said, four arrests, another attempt at prosecution, this has been their reaction to my cabwa. you know, and I'm going to tell you right now, out of all of those, out of all five, I only stepped foot in court one time because they were all thrown out well before that. And Judge called my name, and as I was standing up, he said, "Dismissed," because the cop didn't even show up. The, because I was filming the cops tussling with a subject, he didn't want me filming from seventy-five feet away. Said so I was in the street blocking traffic. The Street was shut down. The cop shut the street down. I was not a hazard in the roadway because there wasn't any traffic. Therefore, he didn't understand the law. I told him I was, a, I was going to show up at court. I'm going to beat you on this. He said, "I'll glad to show up at court." He never showed up at court. Was, case was dismissed and he was transferred out. Immediately went from the police station, I mean, from the courthouse to the police station to file a complaint on him for not showing up, at too. Um, so, again, the reaction has been, as you would expect, a lot of harassment. It's died down over the last year. They know better. They, it's not going to be worth the last guy who cursed me out. He was driving around in his own car, not at work, off duty, driving around calling me a loser and... Fucking loser and stuff like that. I got him suspended for five days. I don't know where he is now. I want to to get a, a restraining order again. I think that would be really funny to see how that would be. Because he was, you know, listen, if you're going to ride around after work stalking me, that's kind of creepy. You've got a gun. He didn't have license plates. He had these illegally tinted windows. It's, you know, it's it's not a good situation. But since then, no, nah, they, when the cops see me, they say, how are you doing? Nice to see you, William. It's not
1: worth it to get
0: into because I'm relentless, and I'm a pain in the ass.
1: wish I could end just on that. It would be a great place to end, but I got two more questions for you. So first question is, um, where do you see kind of the future of your work? You've talked a little bit about kind of the the work you're going to do on your website. And then the second question is, if somebody else is listening to this and is resonating with them and they say, you know, they want, it, they want to do something like this, what's your advice to them? Because you've talked a little bit about how this is something you're doing but that's not necessarily something that everybody else can do. There's some danger to it. There's some stress to it. But those are my t- kind of two questions. Where you see this going, your work going in the future, broadly speaking. Um, and then what if somebody else wants to do some some similar kind of work in terms of cop watching? Maybe they don't want to do the full service kind of work that you're doing, but they just want to get started in this.
0: Yeah, I, I see my my work going a few different places. So first off, I will always film police stop something I enjoy doing. I would like to encourage others to do it. What I'm not going to do is I'm not going to go out there and train people one-on-one. I've tried that. They don't show up. Or the next thing you know, I'm on a stop, and they're screaming Nazis and stuff, and it's a rough situation. Um, where I see my work going, I want to see it in a broader picture, but only st- I want to keep a narrow focus on L.A. I'm not trying to do anything nationally or even at, you know, statewide, focusing on L.A.P.D branch out more into the LASD and some of the other police departments in L.A. County, but I'm focusing on Los Angeles. Um, I do not expect the police department to reform itself on its own. I do not expect politicians to reform the police department on their own. They're not. I see my work going two places, trying to affect policy, policy changes. More than anything, listen, my work affects cops' behavior right now. Hollywood, you're not going to see stop. I mean, honestly, I just don't bump into... I literally have to turn on a scanner, listen, and, and they're rare. There are, there are nights where I'd... I'll be honest with you. Eight months ago, there were nights where I listened to entire bureaus and not heard a single stop. LA polices itself differently. The police stops right now. They're pulling over way less people. Handcuffing and searches are... They're sort of rare in Hollywood. It right? doesn't happen very often. Um, I want to continue with that, but... Again, I think it's—the police department can affect behaviors of officers. It can also affect them. Quite honestly, public shaming goes a long way. There's not a single officer that wants to have their kid see them acting like an asshole. And it's getting 250,000 million views, 10 million views. Okay, And when their family search or friends search the officer's name, it shows up right on—they don't want that. Right. So public shaming goes a long way. I think it's part of my website. I want to include public de- database of officers who have committed misconduct. I would include the misconduct that I've witnessed and videotaped. Videotape. I want to make sure that when people search for an individual officer, they're gonna pop up. My webpage is gonna pop up and it's gonna show their indiscretion. And it's gonna show that the office how they really act when they're on duty. Kids proud of that your wife proud of that? I think that will go a long way in changing. Behavior. Quite honestly, it's more effective than what the police department will do because they do next to nothing right now. So, if somebody else wants to get involved with what I'm doing, I don't know where to start because what I've done is sort of unique in a lot of ways. Listen, you're going up. I realized early on I was going up against a ten thousand uniform sworn officer force, two thousand civilian employees. billion budget, $2 billion operational budget, Um, all types of goodwill with the public, quite honestly, undeserved, Uh, and all types of institutional forces that go along with it. It was me. The only thing I had in my advantage is that I could film stops and then I could get my message out on social media. So for me, I was able to do that, and I was able to do that pretty well. I started off, on quite honestly, on Twitter with like 200 followers. And built off of there. And now I have a pretty good base people that follow me. and I can get my message out there. I, I can, do I want to say, hey, if you want to get involved with cop watching, you need to get 30,000 followers on Twitter? It's, it's, I don't know. I don't know how you can replicate that easily. So I'm not quite sure. Each person has to find their own way. You have to look at your own neighborhood because quite honestly, the way I cop watch in Hollywood is not the way I cop watch when I'm in the South Central. And it's not the way I cop watch when I'm in the Pacific. Completely different depending upon the area. I can walk around and cop watch in Hollywood or cannot do that in other areas. I'm t- you know, some areas it's too rough to even consider doing something like that. There are different rules. I can film stops comfortably in Hollywood. You're in South Central and you're in some hood Maybe that gang doesn't want you filming in their neighborhood, right? So you have to be careful with who you're filming, what you're filming. If somebody's on parole. Or you want to get them in trouble for being out late? Filming somebody and they're with the, some girl. Maybe they have a girlfriend at home they didn't want to know about. You know, you have to be, you know, each situation is unique. I think every person has to just kind of figure out their own way of doing I don't know what sort of advice to give. I would just say, just if you can replicate some of the stuff I do, but find your own way of doing it. Most importantly, cop watching starts with: don't need to record. You see a police stop, you see a police citizen, just stand there and watch. When you stand there and watch, people act differently. If you stand there and record, people act differently. I often say, you know, the way I act outside my house is different when I go inside my house. I right, then I start dancing with my dog and do a bunch of silly stuff outside. You no, know, it's a little, more serious. More serious. So, again, just simply standing there or filming can potentially save a life. You know, it may have saved Tyree Nichols' life if somebody who had actually been there. Because I guarantee those cops, when they were beating him, they were thinking, nobody's ever going to see this body-worn video. Nobody's ever going to see it. But he died. And that's why, and quite honestly, and some activists worked on it. So, standing there, being
1: visible, that's why I would say start
0: from there and build off of that.
1: William... um, you know, I, sometimes this is trite. People say this at the end of podcasts. You know, they say I could a week, I could listen to you all day. But this is true. Like, I, I think that we, I really do want to do kind of a follow up episode. I think you have a lot more things to share with us, a lot more stories to tell us. I've really appreciated hearing from you, and you like your passion for the work that you do. I think it's really important. As a civil rights lawyer myself, is all about the First Amendment and our freedom to petition. I think. This kind of work falls squarely within that ambit, and I think the way that you do it, which is that you are forthright, you're firm, you don't back off, but you're also productive in the way that you do your work. I think is really really hard to walk that that line. So I think I'd like to say thank you for coming out to to ASU um, and talking talking to us, and I also want to make sure that we share your Twitter Twitter uh, handle and your website. With our listeners. We're gonna put it in our show notes.
0: Yeah, so on social media, I'm Film the Police LA or at Film the Police LA on Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, and the website will be filmthepolicela.com. Great. Thanks again
1: for joining us, William. Thank you. Well, thanks for listening to our conversation with William. We hope uh, to have him on the podcast again, hopefully soon. Unfair Nation is filmed in the beautiful and historic Herald Examiner building in LA and in collaboration with the Difference Engine at Arizona State University, an applied center that builds products with and for communities to reduce inequality. This episode was edited by Damian Somerset. You can check out his work at DamianSomerset.com. Special thank you to my colleague, Aubrey Hicks at The Difference Engine, who helped produce this episode and was one of the ones who first shared William's work with us. Sign up for our newsletter and follow our work at unfairnation.com and learn more about The Difference Engine at thedifferenceengine.asu.edu. Thanks again for listening. Uh,
0: It's still a beautiful day outside.